to the book of James, also known as the letter written by James, the epistle from James. It is in the New Testament near the end of the Bible, and it is a short book, short letter. Uh, we see it uh, divided into five chapters. It was not divided norm, uh, when it was written. It was divided for us so we can find out our place and when we're studying the Word together. And I'm going to invite you to turn there, and uh, whether that's by turning a page or clicking the button, uh, either way, turn to that page. And uh, James chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 18. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 1071 if you're looking for it. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, one of the things that we love to do is to get Bibles in people's hands because we know that if we can get it in people's hands, the, po- the possibility of getting in their hearts, it increases. And so uh, if you need a Bible, that's your gift. Take it as a gift from us today for you. Uh, and we'll, we'll certainly replace it. And uh, it's not just for decoration. But stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word today. There's so many times we stand in honor of many, many things And if God is worthy of our worship and we have something worth shouting about, then certainly whenever we see the gift of His Word, that is something worth celebrating and honoring. The Word of the Lord says this. This is after James gives his greeting. And when we read the Bible, we recognize it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that all of it is God-breathed. It's all useful. But this is what is given to us. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field." For the sun rises and and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass and its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By His own choice, He gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, today we read from Your Word. Now help us to understand it. 
You said that you do that not only by providing faithful shepherds and faithful churches who will proclaim and teach this together and pass it on from generation to generation, but we have a greater hope. You have also said that you, the Holy Spirit, will help explain these things that are spiritual and that where your church is gathered, you will be there amongst us. So today we're asking for you to help us all, no matter where we are in our life. And our walk with you. Help us all to, to grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, have your way in this time to challenge the way we might be thinking. To, to come against and exhort us to a greater walk of faith with you. And also, Lord, to be glorified in such a way that our walk is not only strengthened, but the world may get a better view of who Jesus is as we leave this place. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this is part two of a message that was not completed last week. We, uh, we got through one point for the most part, uh, because there was just a lot of riches there that we just can't pass over in some fleeting way as if they don't really leave an impression on us. James is one of those in your face books of the Bible that while others are very pleasant and sometimes sweet and, and, and they're very um, encouraging and soothing, James is kind of like, bow, there it is. And sometimes in the middle of bow, there it is, we're just kind of like, oh, wow, there it was, and then we miss it. And so we need to stop and pause and to read through what is being given to the churches. As James is writing this, uh, we are seeing some of our own questions that we need to ask be answered. We're seeing uh, who wrote it and, and why they wrote it and who they wrote it to. And, and we're seeing what it says and beginning to see what it means and how it applies to our life. We see that it's written by this apostle named James who considered himself a servant of God. And as we look at the life of James, we see that not only was he someone that considered him a, himself a servant of God, and that's how he identified, he's also the very half-brother of Jesus. That, uh, that his, his birth mother and Jesus' birth mother are the same mother. Although Jesus was the firstborn, born of a virgin, but he is, he's kin to Jesus. That's how we call it in the South. He's kinfolk. But that's not how he identifies himself. He doesn't use that this is my name-dropping connection. He, he is given a very high prestigious position in the early church, one that speaks with authority and people listen, and yet he doesn't identify himself in that way. And he, he, he takes this role of being a bondservant and, and calling himself a brother, a one among equals to this letter. And he's writing this letter to people that are not just in his neck of the woods, just in his community, but to those that have been thrust out, dispersed out because of persecution. The very normal, everyday occurrences in their life has been shaken. It is not an easy life to live in. You would say it would be a life of trial. Very present trial. Not just some abstract of when these trials come and if these trials come, but he's writing to those that are in the midst of them in that moment. And maybe that's resonating with you. That you've come to this place where you sense that your life is in a time of turmoil and disconcerting. You have uncertainty about what the next day holds. 
And in this place, the book of James would remind you that in your times of trials, you may see them as this incredibly huge shadow, but there is a God who is greater and bigger than any shadow, any scary moment, any disconcerting circumstance. There is a God that can be trusted, and not only a God who is taking notice of it, but is allowing it for His good purposes. That because of this, when we look to God, we may not like the trial, we're not called to enjoy the trial, but we are to take joy in the God who has never left us and will never leave us in the middle of it. For in that time, He is teaching us something. Last week we were talking about how God is supreme over those trials. And just to give kind of a a quick recap, how is God supreme? Well, there's nothing bigger than God. The Bible's kind of making that a big deal over and over again. It's letting us know from the first to the very end. It was Him that created everything in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Nothing existed aside from Him speaking it. So He's there. And at the end it tells us He's the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. That nothing exists outside of Him. He is big. And I think sometimes we need to come back to our senses as a church and recognize we serve a big God. Not an itsy tensy puny little God. Not a pocket size I can keep him and pull him out whenever I have my troubles. Not a hang around my neck little God, but a big God. And he is supreme over all things. All things, including all trials. And in that supremacy, you may be wondering how he is doing this work in us. What is it, what does it mean? And the Bible is telling us that He's helping us grow as His image bearers, that we're becoming mature, that we're lacking nothing, that we're more representing those who follow the Good Shepherd, that is Jesus. We're reflecting Him and His nature. It's telling us that we're beginning to trust more in His understanding because it says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, I'm glad that is in there because I feel like I lack wisdom all the stinking time. I may think I am clever. But I realize how stupid I am at times. And I am thankful that the Bible gives this open invitation. If any of you lacks wisdom, hello, that's me. He should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to Him. See, the Bible tells us that God is supreme in it and He's doing something to mold us because we begin seeing Him making us more like image bearers, but also trusting in His understanding is greater than our own. We begin seeing our human wisdom is in the limited way that it is. Limited in its knowledge, in its scope, in its perspective, in its angles, and in its experience. It has not lived out everything. It cannot know everything. But we can trust our difficult, finite realities to a divine, infinite Redeemer. We can We can trust His understanding that His wisdom is unlimited. It is practical in how it helps us in the daily task. It is divine in how it comes from above. And it is Christ-like so that we may be mature, lacking nothing. And we ask God to increase our faith to see that and to let us not doubt and be tossed about. Because whenever you have doubt, here's the thing with doubt. I was talking about this earlier this morning in our connection group. When you have doubt, it gives you not a fixed point that you're going for. And and you're really rudderless and you're kind of tossed about whatever way. 
Like this this summer, I, I'm I'm planning on taking my my family to Orlando. Now, thankfully, the plan is we're 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 going to get on a plane and it's just going to take us there. That's like the that's like the goal, right? Uh, because I, if I, if it was requiring a map on my part and, and a road trip, then what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to I know you could just pull up Google Maps and put it on the GPS and it'll tell you. I know that's how it was. It is now. But if I would, did not have that sense of direction, and 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 I didn't have a map to go by. And I didn't have something I could trust and say, yeah, Google, I know you'll get me there. Or Rand McNally, I know if I open it up, it's going to have the right roads. If I didn't have that way, I would say, all right, I'm, let's just aim south and kind of hope we get there. That doesn't make any sense, especially if you're trying to get to a specific place. And if we are aiming our life, if the trajectory of our life is meant to become fully devoted followers of Christ, then the rudder needs to be set to that and that God is faithful in getting us there, helping us there, and that the end is good. The end is trustworthy. The end comes from God. The end produces the virtues of God in my life. It helps me not to only understand His understanding and His ways, but to understand and depend on His inventory. And basically, James puts it here. I know it's very eloquent in the wording, but it, I, I love this. Let's just break it down in the right in your face wordage. If you're broke, you're blessed because you already know what it means to depend on somebody else. If you got nothing, you already know what it means to be desperate. And that's a great lesson to learn in the beginning. That's a blessed place. But if you have your full Understand that you could be easily humiliated because you're going to understand that that is not enough to bank your life on. And it will not get the outcome that you're desiring. It doesn't mean riches are bad. But it means just like anything else in this world, they are here today and gone tomorrow. And there is someone greater that we need to depend on for His inventory, for His resources, for His good. We need to depend on God for who He is. So it helps us to depend on His inventory, but it also helps us to live for His honor. That as we are being tested by the Lord, we're being refined and, and we're being matured and, and, and we're all aiming towards this crown of life for those who love Him. This morning, once again, in our, in our connection group, we were talking about this. It's, it's amazing because the Bible here, if, if you read it and just read that alone, someone could easily misconstrue it and say, See, if you don't do the right works, you never get into heaven. You're never going to get blessed if you don't do the right things. But if you read it in the context of the entire Bible, the way the Bible tells us, and the way that, that Paul writes and the way that Peter writes, he says, we have been gifted already an imperishable crown. Filtering that through what James is saying, live like you've earned it, even though you didn't. Live like you earned it, even though you didn't. Not for a sense of pride, not for a sense of conceit, but live a life that says, this is what God has given me. And it's not just some participation trophy. It's something that is the very direction of my life. I want to honor Jesus because in some inexplicable way, some confounding, mind-blowing, befuddling way, God considers me. God cares for me. God has displayed the greatest sense of honor in dying in my place on the cross for me. So the very goal of my life is God gave up everything for me. I will stop at nothing for Him. 
God gave up everything for me. I want to stop at nothing to honor Him. I want to do it because what He has given me is much desirable, much more valuable and profitable than any crown of leaves for a runner or flowers for a wedding or royalty. It's an honor from the Lord. But I would warn you. I would warn you because I do know there are branches of our faith that try to reformat, if you will, trials. And and they fall into these pitfalls. And and in, in all of them, they begin missing out on God in His supremacy over the trials. That's what happens. They begin missing out in God and His supremacy over the trials. So here are four pitfalls I would ask you to consider in the middle of your trials. First, we should not openly seek trials as proof of our election in Christ. As proof that we are children of God. We shouldn't be going around and being like, yep, yep, that trial just says I'm a Christian. Because the devil's going to punish Christians. And, and God says that we're going to have these trials and it's to be joy. So, so don't just seek them like trying to find yourself in troublesome places just to say, yep, this shows how close I am with God. He trusts me with this trial. That's a foolish way to live. And once again, it's not looking as God supreme over the, our lives. Second, we must not see trials as just the tool of Satan. Some people will look at these and they'll say, these trials are just the devil trying to get me down. That any time a trial is happening, it's because of the devil doing it. Once again, you're giving the devil a little too much credit at times. The devil is not an all-knowing being. The devil is not an omniscient being, being all-knowing. He is not an omnipresent being, being everywhere at once. He is not an omnipotent being, being all-powerful, being able to do whatever he pleases. That's God territory. And the devil ain't that level. He ain't got that pay grade. He don't. But at the same time, if you see trials as just a tool of Satan, once again, you've missed out on the fact that God is supreme over the trials. That God may have been the one, and God is the one because He holds it all, that says, I am allowing this, I am bringing this about, and in my good, I know what is best for my child. Thirdly, another pitfall to consider. We must not miss our need for God in His work on, in, and through us. In other words, sometimes in trials, it's not just for you to try to figure it out on your own. It's to drive you to your knees in dependency and recognize you are loved by God, but you are not God. But He is. And He has not left you alone. But don't fall into that pitfall of pride. We must also not advocate a nonchalant attitude towards our trials. Where we get apathetic and we miss out on what God may be teaching us in the moment. We pretend like they're not a big deal. Now granted, we are to learn and look and filter and have a right way of thinking. Sometimes our trials personally are different from the trials of others. Sometimes they may seem greater. Sometimes they may seem far lesser. But we are never to be an advocate for nonchalant attitude. Be like, I just get through it. Don't worry about it. Keep trucking. Nothing to learn here. Nothing to see here. Those are pitfalls. 
Remember, God is supreme over our trials. So let us worship Him and grow in our knowledge of Him and mature with Him in these trials. But then the Bible moves here. The book of James starts teaching us about these areas we call temptations. And no, these are not the ones that sang my girl. These are temptations that all of us face. And the Bible is letting us know we are accountable in our temptations. The Bible is making us make it clear. The writer of James, James is letting us know that these temptations, we're accountable in the middle of them. Now it gets a little bit different whenever you start seeing what's the difference between a trial and a temptation. What, what is the difference? Well, they are a lot alike in a lot of ways, but they're very different in a number of ways as well. Trials can be things that are beyond your circumstances, beyond your control, as if you have no power or authority. You can't lord them or manipulate them to your will. A temptation may be something that is a desire that, that you don't know where it comes from and it, and it may well up within you, but you have some ability to mold it to your will. You have control over it. And, and, and trials are something that is common to all men and temptations are something that is common to all men. But here's the thing. Multiple, multiple people in the same context, just like the writer of James, James is writing to the people in these exiles scattered about, they are experiencing a similar trial. Your temptation may be far different from the one who is sitting just right next to you. A professor of mine once said this, and we thought it was very insightful. And he says, while temptations are what is common to man, not every temptation affects the same man the same way. Now, that doesn't mean you give higher credence to the temptation. He says, because we may not can control how we're tempted, but we certainly can control what to do when we're tempted. You see, I, my temptations may be far different from yours. It may be far different from people outside these walls. I... And not looking down on anybody that has, we were having this discussion this morning. We were talking about rules and policies in the office and how, uh, the culture is changing and sometimes you deal with people that, that have, uh, same sex attraction issues. Some are dealing with gender identity issues. And I'm, I'm not looking down at anybody, but I'm going to tell you, that's never my temptation. I have not battled that in any scenario one way or another. But it doesn't mean that that person's temptation is not real. It doesn't. But it, all of us, all of us, every single one of us are all still accountable to God and how we respond to that temptation because the temptations are what lead to sin. The temptations are what show us what the source of sin is. Now many times we look and we give the excuse, I'm just broken. I'm beyond help. I'm beyond hope. What could God do with me? And James is writing here with some instruction. He's writing some ins- with some instruction. He goes, well, I want you to first of all know that when you're fa- first of all in temptation, don't use this terrible excuse. It's God who's tempting me. It's God that made me this way. No, no, no. The Lord doesn't do that. He's not tempted. He doesn't tempt anyone. See, we like that. We love the excuses. It's part of our human genome. We, I mean, our spiritual parents did it. Here, think about these excuses we use for sin. 
It's the other person's fault. I never do anything wrong. It's, it's their fault. I couldn't help it. I can't help myself. I know that's the four tops. Not the temptations. Everybody's doing it. It's just a little mistake. Nobody's perfect. The devil made me do it. I was pressured. I didn't know it was wrong. God, it's your fault. I mean, he realized that's what we've been doing all along. That's what Adam and Eve did in that moment in the garden. And I've heard it said, you know, and, and I've said it before here because it's super cheesy and I like little cheesy lines. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Cut it out. Yeah, I know. Terrible. But whenever they're saying this, when Adam's blaming Eve, he's saying, God, this woman you gave me, it's your fault. She made me do it, but you made me do it. But what we need to see when it comes to the source of sin, God is perfectly sinless. He cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. And to have that mentality is a mist view, mischaracterization of God. It's doubting that God is God, that God is holy, that God is good, that God is truth, that God is righteous, that God is perfect, sinless. But if God is perfectly sinless and sin abounds in this world, it means that we are utterly sinful. We are the ones who are utterly sinful. And that's why he tells us these things about whenever we're tempted, what, what does it mean? It helps us to kind of know a little bit what's going on. And, and that, that'll help you, I believe. And that's why Paul, I mean, that's why James is telling us this in his letter. And I hope it helps you today to understand what is going on when you're tempted and why it's good to come to a, a, a beginning resolve before it grows too deadly. He gives us not only the source of sin, saying it's us that we are utterly sinful, but it's also the structure of sin itself. That sin works in our way to first bring about a deception. To challenge what is truthful. To challenge what is good. To challenge what is right. And it says, don't see it that way. Instead, focus on your desire. When we're drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires, it'll pick on the things that already look good to us. Now I'll tell you, I have been working on this like diet thing. And in the morning, sometimes when I go to breakfast, I really, really, really want the potatoes. And I want the toast. And I mean, I want toast that's like, it's crunchy, but at the same time when I squeeze it, the butter's like ringing out of it. That's what I want. And no point in my life have I ever said I would rather have a cup of cottage cheese and tomato slices. <laughs> and no more point in my life I ever desired that. But I'll take it. Because I know it's a better substitute for what I'm trying to accomplish in the now. The same thing is true with our, our sins, our temptations. It is going to play on those things that already tempt us. 
Well, we've already been conditioned in our life through nature, nurture, whatever you want to call it, that the enemy sees this is something that they like. Why do we sin? Because we like it. And we want to do it. It's desirable. But it's a deception. And not only is it a deception, it's disobedience. After desire has fully conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin is transgression. Sin is iniquity. Sin is rebellion. Sin is saying, God, this is what you've said, but I could give a lick, a rip about it. I choose my own way. I spit on your way. Why is sin so utterly sinful? Because that's what it is. It's rebellion and spitting on, on what God has said is good. As the perfect one who knows what is good. But sin not only is disobedience in our life, it gives birth to death. But here's the victory over sin. It's, it's Christ Jesus. That while God is holy in all that He is and all that He does and all that He says, and we with our offensive sin have no right or claim to ever, should ever request to be in that perfect place of righteousness and relationship with Him, none of us have, if we have that gumption, man, I, I, I give you applause, but I also think you're a little crazy. Because none of us stand in that right to even ask such a request. But God seeing in us in our disobedience and our sin and our death, He says, instead of letting them take that default way of life, I will come, I will take on flesh, I will pay the penalty that they so deserve for their sin. I will let justice roll down on myself so that mercy may flow over them. That's the gospel. That God gives us what we do not deserve and He takes what we deserve upon Him. That's why sin is so utterly sinful and God is so utterly perfect. And based on what He has done, the Bible says that victory over sin comes not at trying to earn your way and trying to cleave all this sin off of you. Because I'll tell you, even if you try to clean yourself up, there's still going to be a spot you missed. A spot you can't reach the idolatry of the human heart. Because if we try to clean ourselves up our own thing, what we're saying is I can do it. This idol of myself can do it. But God says, based on the gift that He provides, based on the work He alone has done, says that we can have redemption. And our very eternity can be changed and our life can be transformed because of that. So when you see the hopelessness and the brokenness and the helplessness of of sin and your temptation, you wonder, what can I do? Everything else I have done is vain. Go to Jesus who is victory. Go to Jesus who is the one who says, I took your place and I walk with you and I never leave you. I will walk you through this so that you are no longer in the constancy of being diseased. So that your desires, they actually begin being molded to that which is healthy. When I was a teenager, and, and I'll be honest, I could probably do it now. I might want to crash on the couch for a little while after. But when I was a teenager in early college, you know what I could do? I had this bowl in my house. It's called the dad bowl. Because that dad bowl is the perfect portion size for my cereal. And I mean, I'm not talking about some healthy cereal either. I want the stuff that's rainbow colored, that's sugar coated. I want the stuff that's crunchy and and, and you got to eat it within 30 seconds or it turns to mush. I want that and I want a big portion of it. 
But as I've gone and grown with the Lord, I, I can still eat that and it'd still be desirable. I still like it. But I've learned to desire a lot more healthy foods for me. I've learned to grow in appreciation of things that... Did you know that food miraculously grows from the ground? Did you know that? And it's good. It's crazy. And then my food eats it. And uh it's awesome. Okay. Whew. <laughs> Here's the last part. I don't want to leave you on a terrible, terrible place. Neither does James. This, the goal of this book is for greetings and help and hope to a people in a disconcerted world to know that the one they depend on in their adversity is good. And we see that God is supreme over all our trials. And we see that we are accountable over all our temptations. So how are we to measure that? We must remember that God is faithful for our redemption. And here in this opening part of the letter, James writes and he says in verses 16 through 18, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't let this truth be manipulated. Don't let it get it, don't get it twisted. Don't doubt this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And said, it's in other versions, may say, in Him there is no variation. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is always good. He will always be good. He has always been good. And there's never a point that changes His good. And by His own choice, He gave us birth by the word of truth so we may, we would be a kind of first fruit of His creature. So here's what we need to understand. That the God who is faithful of our, over our redemption, first of all, He's God. He's God. He's much bigger. Trust Him as the supreme one. Trust Him as the redeeming one. Trust Him as the faithful one. And trust Him because His goodness is exactly that. Unchanging. It does not vary from day to day. We may see the level of provision and judge it on our own, but God's goodness is infinitely good all the time. It's unchanging. It's immutable. It will never be pressured by this world. There will never come a circumstance where something occurs to God that He has to make a change. No, He's got it perfectly rigged and formatted the way He wanted it. So that His goodness, His glory that is unchanging forever would always be unchanging forever revealed. And James says, but even though that's true, we can be deceived and our eyes closed and miss that. Remember, God is faithful for our redemption. His goodness is unchanging. Don't be deceived. His, he is God. But here's the only thing, other thing about His goodness. Not only is it unchanging, it is absolutely undeserved. None of it is based on our merit. None of it is based on our willingness. None of it is based on our triumphs. None of it is based on our talents or our skills or our reputations or our personalities. I'm thankful. Because I've been told I have a winning personality and a face for radio. But a voice for a letter. (laughs) It's not based on me. It's not based on you. It is utterly undeserved. It comes and that's why grace is grace. 
Grace is God's unmerited favor. It, it's not something that you showed up one day and be like, oh, I thought I better take notice of Miss So-and-so. Look at that child over there. That's not it. That's not what God is doing. That's not the conversations happen. He said, I'm going to be undeserving and showing, showing them undeserved mercy and grace. Not so it plods him on the back, but because he knows his children desperately need it. But it's unchanging and it's undeserved. The Bible tells us in verse 18 that by God's own choice, by His choice, by His work, by His Word, by the wonder of His Son, He gave us the Word of truth so that we, so that we would be the kind of first fruits of His creatures, so that we would be the ones to experience redemption. But here's the other part of that. If He is God and His goodness is unchanging, if He is God and His goodness is undeserving towards us, one pastor put it this way, we can bank on for serious that He is God and His goodness is unending. One day the trials will end. One day the temptations, they will cease. But God will always be triumphant. And He, was, he is God and he His goodness will always be there. It is unending. You see, the Gospel shares that Jesus has saved us from our sins. That's the beauty of it. But the, the Bible also tells us the Gospel shares that Jesus is the one that sees us through our sorrows. That earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And we are to, to be dependent in our adversity on Him. And when we endure adversity, we begin seeing, wow, this walk with Jesus does bring about endearing joy. It is good to be with the Lord. Because He's good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, I, I pray that You would use this time in Your Word as, as only You can and as You see fit. It was no mistake who was here today and who wasn't. And so, Lord, I pray that in this room You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts open to whatever work You want to do with Your Word to us. You tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of truth, the word of Christ. So Lord, where faith needs to be birthed, birth it. You are a marvelous creator redeeming these creations. Lord, where faith needs to be refreshed and renewed with fervor, God, rekindle something in us. Because you are a father of light that can shine in those dark places and illuminate us with who you are. And wherever your church needs to respond so that you are made known, so that the world may hear about your grandeur and your goodness, Lord, move us in that way to respond. But however your will is working in each life today, God, I pray that in this place, in this time, we would be the ones that as accountable for what we do with your word, we would respond appropriately, faithfully, obediently in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.